As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Odd Lots. It's Monday, February 29th. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, I am really excited about this week's episode. It's a great story that involves a humbled billionaire, some brilliant research by an independent analyst, and a big, big win for digital journalism. And I think at least two of those things are, you know, kind of close to our hearts, right? Yeah, and it involves like some huge financial crime, right? So in addition to just being a humbled billionaire, there's a dramatic element, right? Oh, for sure. But let's start with the billionaire. Okay, we'll back up a little bit. It's a guy called Alan Stanford. I remember him. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably do. Uh, he was CEO of the Stanford Financial Group of Companies, which included all sorts of things like a real estate company, investment firm, and a bank based in Antigua, which is this tiny little island in the Caribbean. Uh, I remember Stanford. I remember he was in the news a lot around the same time as Bernie Madoff. I don't remember a lot of the details, so I'm really excited about talking about this story. Yeah. I mean, if you were living in the UK any time before 2009, you would have heard of Stanford because he was this kind of eccentric, larger-than-life character, this fifth-generation Texan, as he described himself, who decided to come in and support the sport of cricket and transform it. Right. I remember this, that uh, he became this huge backer of cricket, which seemed really weird for a Texas billionaire. And it almost seemed (laughs) impossible to believe that he was, in fact, a Texan. Yeah, I want to kind of nail the eccentricities here because he used to helicopter into the Lord's cricket tournament. Uh, He was caught on camera flirting with these cricketers' wives. Uh, He really made a name for himself in sports and political circles as well. So I could go on and on, but why don't we just let Alan Stanford kind of speak for himself? This is an interview from CNBC with Stanford back in late 2008. You managed to avoid the subprime debacle almost entirely, didn't you? A hundred percent. We avoided the subprime debacle. How did you do that? What, what, what made you, and I'm sure you had the opportunity to, to embrace some of that risk, what told you it was not a wise move? Well, it's very simple because we never understood what the risk was. You know, securitized debt's been around for over three decades now. And uh, when you start packaging something with a lot of assets that are all mixed up and you can't get your arms around what the real asset is, therefore what the risk is, uh, we decide that, uh, decided that whatever perceived profits there might be, 
uh, we decided not to uh, take that risk because we didn't know uh, what the risk really was and the perceived profits really became irrelevant. Kind of makes you wonder uh, whether or not the banks, are, what they were thinking. I think we're going to see a lot of problems surfaced in the first quarter of 2009. Before we let you go, uh, is it fun being a billionaire? Well, uh, yes. <laughs> Yes, yes, I have to say it is fun being a billionaire, I think, but, I think but, it's hard work, but it's hard work. Uh, that was great. I, <laughs> I love the idea that he said it was great to be a billionaire because so many people will say otherwise, or they'll say something <laughs> humble, or they'll say something about how it lets them do good for the world or philanthropy, and he just straight up talked about how great it was to be rich. That's right. Uh, Sir Alan Stanford. No red flags there or anything. No, uh, <laughs> indeed. And I loved also that he said he thought there were going to be a lot of problems for banks in early 2009, because as it turned out, that was the time when his own bank, Stanford International, came under a lot of scrutiny. Uh, well, at least he was right about banks in general. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's one way of putting it. All right, but think back to the headlines in 2009. Suddenly, Alan Stanford is accused of a $7 billion Ponzi scheme and this widespread ongoing fraud. So how did he defend himself when uh, the, we first started uh, hearing about these allegations? All right, we have another clip. Let's fast forward to 2010. This was not a Ponzi scheme. Never in my life have I ever set out to defraud a person. Never. Never have we done anything that I'm not proud of. Never have we done anything to the best of my knowledge that was illegal or wrong. And if there are things that were done that uh, outside of, of my direct control, uh, you know, I don't know what to say. Uh, he sounded a bit different there than his clip from the end of 2008. Yeah, the tone is slightly different, right? <laughs> All right. So when we started, I mentioned uh, that in addition to the humbled billionaire, part of the story was independent analysis and digital journalism. Uh, that's because the investigation around Alan Stanford and his eventual conviction for fraud was sparked by one research note, a single research note that was written by this guy down in Florida and subsequently picked up by financial blogs around the world. Right. Remember when uh, Madoff collapsed, it turned out that there had been a whistleblower who had written a note about him, but no one picked it up. It was not public. No one saw it. It was ignored. This was different because someone actually did write a public note and say, hey, there's something going on here. Yes, he did. And his name is Alex Dalmadi. We're going to have him on the show today to talk about the research note and uh, how it came to be and what happened afterwards. And I'm really excited about talking about this now because, you know, it's not a coincidence that Madoff and Stanford were both discovered during the collapse of 2008, 2009, because it's only when the uh, the tide is receding, people are losing money, that these frauds can no longer go on. And so we're in another period of volatility. And I'm not saying we're going to see another Madoff, but the business models that uh, thrive during the boom years and the shady companies, many of them are likely to be exposed in a mar market downturn. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's that famous Warren Buffett quote about the tide going out, right? We get to see everyone who's been swimming naked. Guys like Madoff and Stanford, it turns out, were uh, definitely uh, in the nude. And of course, you're fond of uh, Galbraith's idea of the bezel and, what, <laughs> and what, what we learn about that during a downturn. All right, let's bring on Dalmati. 
Dalmati, welcome to the show. Hi, Tracy. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. All right. So tell us uh, what you were doing back in sort of early 2009. Who are you and, and what was keeping you busy back then? Okay, well, actually the story starts a little bit earlier in 2008 when I was just uh, um, doing my thing, which is uh, I'm an investment advisor, so I was uh, looking at the, the chaos in the markets. And a friend called me and asked me to uh, do some due diligence on um, Stanford International Bank, where he had uh, a substantial part of his assets. So I did that, and then going over the, the numbers and the notes of financial statements, I it pretty much became clear to me that uh, they couldn't be true, that what they were reporting just was a lie. There was no way that uh, they could be uh, reporting the kind of performance they were reporting because this was a bank, and instead of giving out loans, it was playing the stock market and the financial market and, and supposedly making very consistent and high returns every single year, something that if you're an investment advisor, you know it's very, very, very hard to do. So you looked at this bank. Your friend brought you this bank, he had put his yeah. money into a CD, essentially, that offered this yeah. eye-popping return. No, not even that eye-popping. Oh. I think he was, at the time, he was maybe 5% maybe on, on, on the CDs, which if you go back to hmm. them, that, that's maybe a couple of points over what you would get on a... Yeah, I guess, I guess now CD, in 2016, so. 5% seems like an eye-popping <laughs> return, but uh, maybe right. it wasn't that big. right. So tell us what you saw. You're looking at Stanford's uh, numbers as a favor to your friend, essentially. What were the big warning signs that you picked out? Well, the biggest warning sign was the business model itself, which was they state, we do not, uh, we, don't, we don't give loans. We invest in stocks, bonds, hedge funds, and, you know, gold or whatever. So that's just saying they have an investment portfolio, which is fine. If you have, you know, a low cost, very low cost of funds, you know, you can't, uh, as a bank, you can't invest in the, uh, in something as volatile as, as markets like these and at the same time expect to be able to return stable amounts to your depositors. It's, it's, it was just an impossible business model because you can't expect to make the kind of returns that they needed to make to pay their expenses and their depositors every year forever. Calculating that, it came out to like 13% is what they had to make to break even. And they were claimed, even in 2008, they claimed to have made a profit even in a year in which literally nobody who was long stocks, long private equity, or long gold was making anything. Right. They were claiming to, at that point, we had half-year results, and they were still claiming to make money. And I went back over the results, and they, you know, they were claiming they were making 13 14 15% every year. So, no, it's just not possible. So I just want to, so before we move on, I just wanted to sort of get the summary right for listeners. So like a typical bank, you'd put in a deposit. If it was a CD, you'd get some tiny return, and they the right. bank would then generate a profit via a typical loan portfolio. Now, on the flip side, you have investment institutions that will invest your money in risky things like stocks and private equity, but those don't ever typically pay a, f- a high fixed return. So 
the investor right. could lose money. In this case, it was this combination of both the promised security and safety of a bank with the in returns of an investment company, and that's what you found implausible. Exactly. You said it a lot better than I could have. <laughs> so um, the investor uh, money supposedly not, is not at risk, and, and so the whole risk has been transferred to, to uh, the bank's equity, and it's leveraged pretty much uh, 20 to 1. And the other thing is the cost of funds is ridiculously high because not so much because the CDs rates were that high is because they didn't have any other sort of deposit. There was no, you know, um, demand accounts or, or, or demand deposits, checking accounts or any of that. Any of that. It, was, it was basically all CDs. So if all your funding uh, is... is uh, is accruing interest. It just makes your, your costs that much higher. So that was basically the, the, the whole thing. The business model itself was impossible, and therefore the numbers themselves couldn't be true. There were some other red flags, though, as well, right? You have this bank sure. based in Antigua, mm. which isn't necessarily no. a well-known um, capital no, the, of, of governance. Yes. Um, it's not Switzerland. Right. <laughs> and um, You also had the fact that uh, Stanford was using this totally unknown auditor, which That's seemed correct. to be run by a, a single guy. Like I said, it was a, it's a small auditing firm. He had been auditing forever. They had never changed auditors. That was another red flag. And and then you had uh, there was a number of things. Just the just the language of the of the statements was not typical of what you will find in an audited statement. It it uh, it made. Uh, subjective um, qualifications. Like, uh, for example, just as an example, it, it said that uh, the bank had a balanced portfolio. That's something that no auditor will ever <laughs> sign off on. The numbers didn't make it. The language wasn't right. So I, I just told my, my friend, you know what, get out as soon as you can. When did you actually make the decision to synthesize all of these points into a public um, analysis? Yeah. Now, this is something I haven't I've told a lot of people before. Afterwards, what happened is in December um, of 2008, the Madoff uh, scandal came out. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm uh, we're looking. At, I'm looking at the TV and 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 my friend again. He calls me. And it turns out that not only he was invested in Stanford, he had invested in Madoff. Oh, jeez. So oh, that was a quite, unfortunately, not a large amount because he kind of lost that. This totally just just uh, put me off the rails. And I told him, you know what, I'm going to write something about about Stanford. We're going we're gonna to blow that open. And Sid, he had already gotten his money out. He said, well, go ahead, you know, nail him. That, so that was, so this decision it, so. of yours to go public with your findings, you wrote a note. Yes. It was called DuckTales, the reference yes. being if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it is a duck. If it w looks and acts like a Ponzi, it is a Ponzi. There's an important parallel with Madoff, which is that there was a whistleblower, uh, Harry Markopoulos, who had tried right. to warn the world about Madoff, a long time earlier, but he never really went public with his findings. It wasn't something that journalists could have picked up on. Regulators ignored him. So when you decided yes. to go public, 
people actually discovered it. You did it in a way that allowed people to actually find and uh, promote your work. So tell us about exactly where you published uh, the material and then how you got the attention for it. Yeah, initially I was going to publish it in a in a Venezuelan uh, newspaper, but uh, in the end they turned me down. So I went to a, a Venezuelan economic review newspaper. Alex, I was going to ask, were you scared mm. publishing this? Because, you know, let me set the scene. We're talking about this larger-than-life character. He's yep. kind of famous for giving lots of money to sporting events. He has a knighthood from Antigua. He's donated millions of dollars to U.S. politicians. You must have been a little nervous, right? I was terrified. I thought I was going to be sued. And I thought my, my especially the editor and I, were going to be get our pants sued off. Hmm. And on the other hand, I figured, well, it, it's pretty much certain that this is that this is a fraud. So if they come out and sue, you know, that will just make the whole thing much more public. So even though there was the obvious fear of calling this large organization and rich guy a fraudster because you were just yeah. so rock solid in your analysis, you ultimately determined you just had nothing to it really was, be afraid of. It was, I was... 99.9% sure, because for their numbers to be correct, he had to be the outlier of the outliers. Hmm. You publish this note, and it yes. gets picked up by, initially, I think, all these sort of um, financial bloggers, right? Yes. And the Financial Times picked it up, picked it up pretty early, too. And that was a, that was a big thing. The, mostly it was the, the bloggers who picked it up and, and put it, in the uh, cyber domains, you know, because I had published on paper initially. Mm. So once it got into the Internet, the thing that happened, also there was lots of people looking at him at Stanford, the mm -hmm. same way I had been looking at him. Matthew Goldstein from uh, Business Week was, had been preparing an article. He was one of the first to call me. And the folks at Bloomberg were also onto the stories. And, and once once it started going through getting into the more mainstream blogs and, and, and articles, then it just it just exploded. My my article went out at the end of uh January and two weeks later the the uh, feds were raiding the Houston offices hmm. and shutting them down. So Alex I when I listen to the story, the overriding question I have on my mind is how did regulators miss this guy. You know, you took a look at the financial numbers and with 99.9% .9 certainty said this was a Ponzi. How come no one else yeah. did the same? Well, the problem is with, with regulators is that uh, high probability isn't any good, isn't, isn't proof for them. Hmm. Because they are more than, than accountants or financial analysts, they're lawyers. Hmm. So what they need is a smoking gun. They want somebody an insider to tell them that it's Ponzi. They want mm. a customer to complain that it's a Ponzi. You know, they want something more than high probability of of it not being as it's told. You can't really uh, act on it's probable. I understand. I understand their position. Not totally, I mean, but to a point. Because... Your, your regulators, they're, they're bound by certain, there's certain 
things that the, that the company has to produce. They have to produce uh, financial statements. They have to do this, that. No, but and if you check those all off the list, well, they're good. Hmm. So, Alex, uh, what are you doing nowadays? I'm doing the same thing I've always been doing. I'm 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 an investment advisor. I'm a financial analyst. People ask me what to do with their money, and I'll give them ideas. And do you and, keep an eye yeah. out for the next? Like, do you no. yeah, for the next one? Like, do you sort of probe and no. look at things that seem no, suspicious? No, I don't. But somehow, some of these things actually seem to find me. No, I was uh, <laughs> a couple of years back. I actually uh, found. Um, there was a case called uh, Sino Forest. Oh yeah. oh yeah, yeah. I found myself on the other side of that. Had some some uh, clients invested had bonds of this company, and fortunately, of course, since I had been in 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 the whistleblower shoes, you know, I got out quickly. Joe and I were talking earlier about the idea that when the easy money kind of dries up and when bull markets come to an end, a lot of these Ponzi's emerge. We've seen a lot of market volatility recently. Do you think we're in a sort of same time period now? Could we see some of these things come out of the woodwork? Well, very possibly. But but then again, I think regulators are, are have tightened up a bit too. Also, so so the easy Ponzi's were also discovered back in 2008, 2009, 2010. You see the activity in in that sense. I think it's gone down a bit. Hopefully, As, uh, but there's a lot of things that 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 were and, and could continue to be uh, problematic. I mean, you. Hedge funds are, are just not transparent enough, mm. and, and and they're prone to being fraudulent. And uh, you know, and then you have all these, if you would, off the market products. You know, the unlisted and unregulated REITs and things like that. That you're never sure. So, so do you have? Um Real quick, one or two rules that everybody should abide by if they want to avoid getting uh, scammed. Uh, I'd say you know the best thing is to try to fun- try to understand um, the motivations and the and and the why somebody is selling this to you. Mm. You know, if it's so good, you know why. Why isn't this person? Why is it? Why are they selling? Why are they offering it to me? Why am I so special <laughs> I like that. that they're offering this this huge opportunity to me? So that's that's one thing I would look out for. And the other thing is, if you can, if you really know somebody who is who can look at it for you and doesn't have a vested interest in it, it's good. Get them to look at it, just like my friend did. He, you know, he he called me out of the blue after some after. I don't. I haven't seen him for years, and 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 that turned out really well for him, and it turned out well for me too. I mean, this this you know, it uh, was an interesting part of my life, I guess. Interesting indeed, Alex. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was great. There's so many good things about that story, and I think for both of us, a story like this. Uh, has a special place in our hearts for multiple reasons. One, both of us 
were very active in digital media during the crisis. We both covered this story. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a little guy versus a big guy story. It's just, it has everything. Yeah, and I feel like I should mention that Alex is actually writing a book on this very topic. So it should be out this year. It's going to be called If It Walks Like a Duck. And if you want to hear more about this kind of crazy tale, you should definitely pick it up. One thing that I just want to go back to, and you hit on this because it is kind of the craziest thing, is just the guts that it uh, Mm. takes to publish something like this. Even if you're totally sure, Mm -hmm. this is a big financial institution. This is a billionaire. And there was no equivocating in his original essay on it. It wasn't like, I have concerns. It said, this is a fraud. And I just find that to be extraordinarily um, brave to do, even with all the evidence on your side. I think that's absolutely right. And if anything, it really demonstrates the importance of independent financial analysis. And I also, and that the reason, you know, his explanation for why regulators aren't equipped to catch these things, they're not really so much looking at the financial stuff. They're more wanting tips and stuff like that is also another fascinating angle. And I actually, uh, I, he gave me a little more sympathy for the people who missed these uh, frauds. You think so? I'm, a little bit. I'm kind of more angry about it because here I see this little guy who yes. was 99.9% certain just by looking at numbers and coming up with his mm-hmm. own thought process. And then you have regulators whose job is to do the same thing and they won't act without 100% certainty. Yeah, no, that's true. I guess I'm just thinking in terms of filtering out, you know, you look at, you try to, you see these financial institutions and I could see how you end up just checking off the box. Like they filed this, they Mm -hmm. had this auditor do this and say, okay. Um, And so look at how regulators might go about trying to find these frauds. It sounds like there's uh, structural things that might need to be changed with that. All right, we're going to leave it there for this week. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Thanks for listening. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.